The Waldani man who had visited with the missionaries on Friday was named Ninkiwi. The younger woman was Gamadi. The older woman, Mintaka. In a tribe of killers, Ninkiwi stood out. He had had two wives and had speared one when she displeased him. Now he wanted to marry the provocative young Gamadi. Her brother, a fierce warrior named Nampa, opposed the match. As this tension was developing on Friday morning, January 6, Gamadi, a willful sort, had left the Waldani settlement. So did Ninkiwi. The older woman, Mintaka, saw what was happening and went along as a self-selected chaperone. The three of them eventually came upon the five missionaries and, as we've seen, peacefully spent the day with them. When Gamadi got up and left the men's campsite, Ninkiwi followed her into the dense tangle of trees and vines. Mintaka stayed with the missionaries until very early the next morning, then made her way back to the Waldani settlement. So did Ninkiwi and Gamadi, but only after spending the night alone together in the jungle, a violation of Waldani mores. On Saturday, Ninkiwi was more determined than ever to have his way and marry Gamadi. Nampa, furious, did not want Ninkiwi to have his sister. He and Ninkiwi both escalated into a killing rage, which in Waldani culture could only have one outcome, death by spearing. As others gathered around the tension mounting, Ninkiwi skillfully turned the wrath against him toward the missionaries. He described the visit with Nate, Jim, and the others, but with his own spin on it. The foreigners were going to kill us, he exclaimed. The older woman, Mintaka, scoffed at this. She told the other Waldani about the peaceful visit with the five light-skinned men. We ate their food with them, she explained. Ninkiwi's talking wild. Gikita, a seasoned warrior and the oldest in the group, well knew Ninkiwi's tendency to lie for his own advantage. But he also knew the tribe could not afford to kill one of its own warriors right then. The low river months of December, January, and February were the killing season when other Waldani clans would attack. They needed Ninkiwi for the coming raids. As Ninkiwi's accusations against the five foreigners continued, the tribe's anger and bloodlust started to burn, and soon they were sharpening their spears. Yes, they shouted, we will spear, we will go and kill the Kuwari. The course was set. The Waldani spent the rest of Saturday making spears, sharpening them with the machetes the missionaries had dropped as gifts. They would attack the next day. Of course, the missionaries didn't know about this web of lies, intrigue, and rage. On Sunday morning, January 8th, when Nate Saint flew over the jungle, he saw a group of naked tribespeople heading in the direction of Palm Beach. At 12.30 p.m., he radioed Marge that he'd seen the approaching Waldani and that they would certainly arrive at the missionaries' camp later in the afternoon. Pray for us, he concluded. This is the day. We'll contact you next at 4.30. After Nate landed his yellow plane on the sandbar and shouted to Jim, Ed, Pete, and Roger about the expected visitors, the five missionaries paced the beach, praying and reviewing the phrase books, waiting. A pot of beans simmered over their open fire. They all had on shirts and khaki pants, except for Roger, who wore blue jeans. They were brimming with anticipation, hoping that the Waldani might invite them to their homes. The accounts of what happened next have varied over the many years since January 1956. Each Waldani who participated in the killing saw the event only from his own perspective. Each was fueled by adrenaline that both concentrated and soon exhausted his energy, focus, and anger. But the various accounts and the forensic evidence agree on the overall course of the attack, and all agree on its quick outcome. The action unfolded on the banks of the Kururay River. 
The five men were now under their makeshift shelter from the sun, batting at insects and waiting for the Waldani to emerge from the jungle. Meanwhile, the Waldani warriors had stealthily separated into two groups. They were accompanied by several women. The first group hid upriver, a distance away from the missionaries' base camp. A couple of the Waldani women, decoys, came out from the tall sugar cane next to the water, calling out to the foreigners down the beach. As would be expected, Jim Elliott was the first to head in their direction, away from the camp, joined by his old friend Pete. Meanwhile, Roger, Nate, and Ed waited back near the shelter. So the missionaries were separated when the ambush began. As Jim Elliott smiled and gestured happily, his attention focused on the women. Nampa burst from the thick foliage, running toward Jim with his spear poised. Jim grabbed at his side where he was wearing a holster with a snap-down cover. He somehow got the pistol out and raised his arm to fire a warning shot into the air, but Nampa had thrown his spear with deadly accuracy toward the middle of Jim's chest. One of the women, Nampa's mother, ran at Jim from behind and pulled his arm down. As she did so, Jim's gun went off. The bullet grazed Nampa's head and he fell not far from where Jim thudded to the sand. Nampa's spear in his chest. Simultaneously, the downriver warrior shot out of the jungle near the missionary's base camp. The warrior Gikita speared Nate, hitting him center chest. The others rushed Ed and Roger. At some point in the chaos, Big Ed McCauley tried to protect one of his missionary friends by grabbing his attacker's arms from behind. Other Indians came behind Ed, spearing him in the back. At the same time, one of the missionaries, most likely the battle-seasoned Roger, ran toward the airplane and desperately leaned in to grab the handheld radio. The Waldani pursued him and speared him in an upward thrust through the right hip. He fell in the sand, covered in blood. They speared him again and again. Upriver, after Jim went down, Pete had escaped to a log resting in the shallow river. Why didn't he flee? The warriors asked years later. He just stood there, calling out to us. It's unknown if Pete's phrases were fully intelligible to the Waldani. It is known that they could see that he meant no harm. But in their flow of rage, it didn't matter. They ran toward him and threw their spears, piercing his heart. As was customary in their killings, the attackers circulated among the fallen men, insulting them and plunging more spears in their bodies so all would share common responsibility for the deaths. The missionaries, bleeding from horrific wounds, did not live long. The killers, hard breathing, hyped by adrenaline. The missionaries, breathing their last, blood in the sand, the pull of the warm water, the jungle canopy spinning green, blue, then brilliant, brilliant gold. This is Paula Eman. You're listening to Cloud of Witnesses, Episode 22, Through Gates of Endurance. My hope is that today's episode, along with the past and future episodes, will be tools in your tool belt for the sake of endurance. The faith race is hard, but so worth it. Press on for the glory of God. So many witnesses before us have endured by the grace of God with their hearts set on the imminent return of Jesus. Believer, by His grace you can too. Thank you for joining me today. If the Lord lays it on your heart to support the production of this podcast, you can do so at EnduringWitnesses.com. Thanks in advance for your partnership in this ministry. 
Now, you may be asking yourself, I've heard of Jim Elliott and his missionary friends who were murdered, but I thought they were murdered by the Aukas. You're 100% right. The term Aukas means naked savages. It was the term used by the missionaries and many others in the 1950s and 60s to describe a tribe of Ecuadorian Indians. Although the missionaries use the term with only good intentions, the actual name of the tribe is Waldani. Because the term Aka is now considered less than loving, I will use Waldani for the rest of our time together. You can't hear the name Jim Elliot without thinking of the name Elizabeth Elliot. Since 1956, her name has been associated with the topics of martyrdom, widowhood, perseverance, linguistics, Ecuador, and so much more. Before her death, she wrote countless magazine articles and, if my research is correct, 39 books. She blessed the world with devotionals and is still, even after death, blessing multitudes with the podcast I believe her granddaughter has produced. The podcast is a compilation of the different lectures and talks Elizabeth gave over her roughly 55 years of ministry. I want to recommend it to you. It's simply called Elizabeth Elliot Podcast. There's also a website dedicated completely to inspiring you with her testimony and resources. It's www.elizabethelliot.org. I'll leave the link in today's show notes. In preparation for today's episode, I read the book Becoming Elizabeth Elliot. It's an excellent biography by Ellen Vaughn. Any excerpts I include today will come from this book. Vaughn refers to Elizabeth as Betty. This is what most people called her during her growing up years. It's also what her friends and family ministers called her. It's what Jim called her, among other things. After reading her book, I feel like I know her so well that I'll call her Betty the rest of our time together. Betty was born on December 21, 1926, in Brussels, Belgium. Her mother's name was Catherine, and her father's name was Philip Eugene Howard, Jr. They were missionaries to Brussels with the Belgian Gospel Mission. It's said that the mission combined humanitarian aid with evangelism among Belgian soldiers who'd returned home from the hideous battlefields of the Great War. After this ministry, the Howard's focus became distributing Bibles to lay people. Because of Catholicism, which had in its folds 99% of the country, ordinary people didn't have Bibles. The Howards taught Sunday school, held tent evangelism meetings, and were very neighborly. They were hard workers. They were not rich. They were not poor. A few months after Betty was born, they moved to the U.S. so that her dad could become the associate editor of Sunday School Times. It was a weekly periodical that was recognized as an influence among Protestants around the world. Reading their Bibles every morning before dawn, having family devotions before breakfast and after dinner, singing hymns, reading devotionals by Spurgeon or Jonathan Edwards, and praying together were all ways that the Howards poured into their children the truths of the Word of God. Their emphasis was God and God first. Listen to the words of the sweet song Betty's mom Catherine sang to her younger children every night. Jesus, tender shepherd, hear me. Bless thy little lamb tonight. Through the darkness be thou near me. Keep me safe till morning light. Because of her dad's position at Sunday School Times, missionaries often visited their home. Forty-two different countries were represented in those visits. While listening to them talk about what the Lord was doing in the areas of ministry, Betty would merge with them the story she'd read of Mary Slessor and David Livingstone working for the Lord in deepest Africa. She always pictured herself in the future as a missionary to Africa. Betty Stamm, 
Actually, Betty Scott at the time was one of the missionaries whose visit had a lifelong impact on Betty. Betty Stam grew up as a missionary kid in China. After college, she went back to China and was later married and joined by her husband, John. They were cruelly beheaded by a communist leader. Betty was only eight or nine when her family got the news of their deaths. A few years later, she pasted Betty Stam's radical poem into her Bible. It eventually became her own. Lord, I give up all my own plans and purposes, all my own desires and hopes, and accept thy will for my life. I give myself, my life, my all, utterly to thee, to be thine forever. Fill me and seal me with the Holy Spirit. Use me as thou will. Send me where thou will and work out thy will in my life at any cost now and forever. Why do I always describe to you the way each witness was raised and the things their parents emphasized? Because it's so instrumental in the people they became. Parents have the amazing opportunity to set for their children a spiritual foundation that will carry them through their lifetime. Of course, they're independently responsible before God. They must come to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But parents should be the most prominent banner wavers in lives of their children for the purpose of compelling them to look to Him. May we not forget that. But when we do, may we fall on our knees asking the Lord to give us grace to pick up the banner again. Did you grow up in a home that didn't do this for you? By God's grace, even though it's probably a source of pain, it's overcomable. Dig deep into God's Word. Surround yourself with people who are currently exalting Christ. Break the cycle and become a victorious banner waver yourself. It's highly possible because God is for you. Besides, His message is always carried in a broken vessel anyway. Betty's family lived in Philly for eight to nine years until they moved to New Jersey. She had a big brother named Philip, then David after her, then Virginia, Thomas, and James. She was saved at age four or five, and at age 12 dedicated her life to serving Christ. She lived near her grandparents, one set stiff, the other set warm and loving. Her home life was said to be performance-driven, yet secure. Growing up, she was shy, tall, self-conscious, and an avid journaler. At age 14, Betty became a student at a Christian boarding school, Hampton DuBose Academy. It was 1941. World War II was in full swing. Hampton DuBose Academy was founded in 1934 by the son of missionary parents in China. It was founded so that Christians could grow in their faith, receive a liberal arts education, and learn Southern social graces. It housed a lot of missionary kids. It was very conservative, formal, and fancy. It would later be described as legalistic, but the Lord used it in Betty's spiritual journey. She graduated in 1944 as the valedictorian of her class of 10. One thing that impacted Betty for the rest of her life was when Mrs. DuBose, the very strict founder's wife, would quote from Amy Carmichael's books. Betty was enthralled. She said, There was something so clean and pure and steel-like in Amy Carmichael's absolutely flint-like determination to be obedient. She was my first spiritual mother. Betty learned that Amy was inspired by Hudson Taylor. There we have it again. Inspiring people, inspiring, inspiring people. Why is that possible? because they all clung to and pointed to Christ. The year of Amy Carmichael's death was the same year that Betty headed to the mission field in South America. It's said that she was steeled and shaped by her hero's life. Carmichael's characterization of mission life ringing in her ear, missionary life is simply a chance to die. 
Now to Wheaton, Illinois, where Betty attended Wheaton College, a student body less than a thousand, but very well known for producing a lot of Christian leaders. Its motto was, For Christ and His Kingdom. Her sophomore year proved to be a year full of guy drama. It was also full of insights from her southern and kind housemother named Catherine Cumming, who was able to communicate in a way that the self-confessed, sometimes prickly Betty would accept. She also said of Cumming that she was so completely abandoned to the Lord and so overflowing with the joy of the Lord and a genuine Calvary love for his children. Wheaton hosted regular evangelistic meetings that caused Betty to rejoice in the Lord. She joined the debate team with her brother Dave and excelled. She read powerful books like C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters and Andrew Murray's Humility. A turning point in Betty's life was when a speaker from Wycliffe Bible Translators came to campus. He spoke about pioneer missionaries, those who seek to reach people who had never even heard the name of Jesus. He challenged the students to take the harder road rather than opting for already established or flourishing mission stations. How did Betty respond to this challenge? She said, May the Lord keep before me His purpose for my life, and may I never be discouraged or sidetracked in any way. What impacted her during her junior year? Well, Greek class for one. She was a natural. She continued to feel pulled towards the mission field, perhaps in translation work. She longed for a deep soul understanding in any romantic relationship. She noticed how shy and distant she could be towards others, and she met Jim Elliott in her Greek class. One of her classmates encouraged her to go to Wycliffe. The Lord used Isaiah 42.6 to confirm to her that he wanted her to translate the Bible to a people who didn't have one yet. It says this, I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. She was thrilled at the potential of being an ambassador for the King of Kings. Her school year continued to be marked by time with Jim. He had a lot of classes with her. Even though he began to fall in love with Betty and she with him, he was very determined not to get married because he viewed it as a probable distraction from doing God's will. Betty spent the summer of 48 at the University of Oklahoma. With connections to Wycliffe Bible translators, she studied skills that she would need to translate the New Testament into an as-yet-unwritten tribal language. After communicating off and on, she and Jim spent a few days together at the end of that summer as Betty made her way to the Prairie Bible Institute in Alberta, Canada. Jim declared that he loved her. They both knew that was a phrase made to pave the way for marriage. They both also knew that he intended to go to the mission field single. Torturous. For her field work, Betty spent time in Patience, Alberta. The lives of the locals were hard, and they spent time drowning out their hardships with alcohol, vulgar gossip, and fights. Their lifestyles were heartbreaking to Betty. She found comfort in Hudson Taylor's words, It's not what we set ourselves to do that really tells him blessing, so much as what he is doing through us when we least expect it. If only we are in abiding fellowship with him. While she was in patience, she received a lot of messages from Jim. She disciplined herself not to respond as often. She wrote her feelings to him in a journal instead. Betty was very patient in waiting for Jim during their five-year courtship. Her own trust in God's leading, no matter what, reinforced her endurance. She could endure because she cast all her anxieties on God. She threw herself open to him wholeheartedly, without restraint. She went to visit Jim's parents in Portland for Labor Day weekend, 1949. 
Due to her reserved and at times rigid personality, it didn't go well at all. Jim's parents made it painfully clear about how horribly it went. Betty was crushed when Jim told her. In 1951, Betty was back at home. Her days were filled with tutoring high school girls, leading children's Sunday school and afternoon Bible clubs, and working in a women's clothing store in Philly. She was still unsure of what the Lord wanted her to do and tried her best not to expect the Lord to lead her the same way He had led other people. The way the Lord seemed to be quietly leading her was through repeated disappointments and a revealing of some plan which did not at all fit her expectations. She felt stripped of absolutely everything, even the things she enjoyed, but she had a foundation that was stronger than her feelings. Her relationship with the Lord continued to deepen as she clung to Him while not knowing what He had for her. The Elliots came to visit the Howards. It went much better. Jim confessed that he should never have told Betty about all his family's misgivings about her. In early October 1951, Jim, Ed McCauley, and his buddy Pete Fleming became fascinated with the idea of ministering with Dr. Tidmarsh to the Quichua Indians in Ecuador, and possibly even to an unreached people group called the Waldani. Betty's love for Jim continued to grow. Jim was still committed to being a single missionary, but he wondered if his determination to be a single missionary was necessary. He declared in his journals how much he needed her in every way. Plans started coming together. Jim and his friend Pete would soon sail to Ecuador. In the fall of 51, Betty was invited to join a Spanish-speaking Plymouth Brethren community in New York for the purpose of learning Spanish and working in the ministry office there. She would stay in an apartment that someone had prepared for her, and she would learn Spanish. As it turned out, the apartment was so horrible that it led her into a great amount of depression. The Lord was gracious to see her need for encouragement and sent her Catherine Morgan, a missionary who would become a lifelong friend, inspiration, and example for her. Jim and Pete made it to Ecuador in 52. Betty felt alone again in New York. Within the next two weeks, she gained some flatmates, Dorothy Jones and Doreen Clifford, a British missionary home from the Ecuadorian jungle on furlough. She communicated her burden for the Waldani tribe of Indians and also made it clear that men were needed to minister to them and that men had been killed trying. She asked Betty to start praying about whether or not the Lord wanted her to go with her. Betty was excited because she'd sensed the Lord wanting her to participate in a pioneer work, especially one that would use her linguistic skills. So, truly, it wasn't her husband's death that catapulted her into the ministry with the Waldani. It was a result of the Spirit's moving her heart's desire, and Doreen Clifford's influence and inspiration. Soon enough, she gladly said goodbye to her New York apartment. She also said goodbye to her parents and set sail to Ecuador on the Santa Margarita. A seasoned missionary, Dr. Tidmarsh, had made arrangements for Betty and Dorothy Jones. Soon after, Jim and Pete Fleming moved in across the street. This was the first time since college that she got to see Jim every day. He made it very clear to Betty that ministering to the Waldani could very easily cost him his life. She didn't think this was reason enough not to get married. He was concerned that a wife and child would cause him to be inhibited. So because he wouldn't commit himself to her, she forced herself to be distant at times, even cutting. At one point, she confessed to him that she was only doing that to conceal the depth of how she really felt about him. He responded in gentleness, but he continued to hold on to his conviction of going into the jungle single and unencumbered. Meanwhile, her younger sister got engaged. It was hard for her. 
Her brother Dave had a baby around the same time. She felt tortured. She was also aware of the possibility of what people would say about her chasing Jim around the world. At the end of 52, Jim and Pete were now ready to move to the great jungle southeast of Quito to begin working in a settlement called Shandia at the headwaters of the Amazon Basin. They were going to work to regain some ground that nature had taken from some things Dr. Tidmarsh and the Indians had established for the purpose of partnering with the Quichua. Then they left. Because Betty felt no freedom to plan her future with Jim, she made plans without him and with Dorothy. They went to minister in the opposite direction of Jim and Pete. Their intent was to work with the Colorado Indians. Ellen Vaughn points out that Betty's time among the Colorados stripped her, in some shocking and violent ways, of her tidy assumptions about God's will. Among the Colorados, she confronted, perhaps for the first time, the monolithic, impenetrable mystery of God's ways. Betty's main job was to put the Colorado language into written form. None of the Indians wanted to help her. They were proud, independent, and a bit disdainful about the white woman's presence in their world. Nevertheless, she was not deterred because she believed the Lord was on her side. She prayed and claimed Isaiah 57, But the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be ashamed. A believing Ecuadorian named Don Macario could speak Spanish and Colorado. He was willing to work for what Betty could pay. This was a direct answer to her prayer. Tragically, he died after being shot point-blank in the head by another man because of a land dispute. Betty's faith was shaken. She didn't understand how God could do this and jeopardize the salvation and discipleship of this jungle tribe. Had she sacrificed everything to now just be on a fool's errand? She mourned. I had desired God himself, and he had not only given me what I asked for, he had snatched away what I had. I came to nothing, to emptiness. A few nights later, she received a telegram from Ed McCauley. It said, Jim will come to Quito Friday. Come. Come she did. It was a 10-hour journey, but when she got there, they got engaged. Can I just pause here to say, hallelujah? If my memory serves me correctly, the relationship with Jim is what inspired her book, Passion and Purity. In his classic Jim way, he told her that she had to learn Quichua before they could get married because he didn't want marriage to distract her. After two and a half weeks, she went back to San Miguel to work with the Colorado and to learn Quichua. She gained a new informant named Samuel and completed a phonemic alphabet of Safiki. Vaughn notes that this hard-won material could be used by Doreen and Barbara and any other missionaries as a base to understand and communicate with the Colorados. Linguists could build on it to eventually translate the New Testament. Barbara and Doreen consulted the Safiki alphabet often and began to make progress in the Colorado language. In early summer, Betty moved to Dos Rios to begin learning, immersing, and conversing in the Quichua language. Devastating news then made it to her. All of her language notes, etc., had been stolen. Again, she questioned, what was God doing? Didn't he want the Colorados to have the Bible in their own language? 
Why would he so casually allow the loss of nine months of painstaking work for his kingdom? This situation was a catalyst, as Vaughn so beautifully points out, for Betty to learn that God's will is a mystery that cannot be mastered, an experience that cannot be classified, a wonder that has no end. His will weaves together strands of life, death, grace, pain, joy, humility, and awe. Truly this loss was not an ultimate loss, though. Betty learned two languages and many practical skills that were essential for missions work. Jim and Betty got married at 9.30 a.m. on October 8, 1953. Their ceremony is said to have only taken 10 minutes. Their honeymoon was said to be spectacular. For the sake of time, I'm going to skip over much of their ministry that led up to the death of Jim, Nate Saint, Ed McCauley, Pete Fleming, and Roger Udarian. Sufficient to say that their ministry was filled with teaching and training the Kishwa in the Word of God. They also worked on translating parts of the Bible into Kishwa. Betty was the heavy lifter of the two. Jim and many others built and maintained multiple facilities, prayed fervently, and planned feverishly for a ministry with a wild Donnie. Jim and Betty also took care of their precious new daughter, Valerie. You heard at the beginning of our time together how the time with the wild Donnie ended on that sandy beach on the Curare River. It was brutal and it was bloody. I can't help but be reminded of the way Jesus' ministry ended. It was brutal and it was bloody. But oh, the hope that came from Christ's death. He wrought salvation for the world. They have but to believe. Praise the Lord he didn't stay dead, though. He rose again on the third day and is seated at the right hand of God. The death of Jim and his four missionary brothers put into motion a ministry with the Waldani that continues to this day. Praise the Lord. Betty went with Rachel Saint to eventually live among these spear-wielding people. The days were long and hard. Tensions between Betty and Rachel were real and well-documented. Betty wondered if it was because she had stronger linguistic skills than Rachel. Whatever the case, the conflict constantly grieved Betty's heart. Why could they not love and support each other? Why could there not be cooperation? Betty described herself as so depressed, totally lacking in any desire to do a single thing, longing only for death or escape of any kind. A good relationship between the two women was never meant to be. The Lord used this conflict to confirm in Betty's mind the importance of the last thing Jim told her— Teach the believers, darling. So after she and Valerie left the Waldani territory, they went back to Shandia, where the Kishwa lived. Betty's emotional wounds were very raw from the heartbreaking situation with Rachel. The linguistic group Rachel represented also greatly disrespected Betty's linguistic gifting. While she was in Shandia, the Lord sent her a dear kindred missionary friend who inspired and encouraged her in a way that she hadn't been since Jim died six incredibly difficult years earlier. The timing of the visit from her friend could not have been better. Betty's time back with the Kishwa was also life-giving. By God's grace, she made great strides with them for the sake of translating more of the Bible into their language. But eventually, Betty and her daughter Val left their beloved Ecuador and their dear Kishwa and Waldani Indians. They headed to Betty's favorite place in New Hampshire to build a house. It's from there that she wrote many of her books and articles. Of course, by this time she had already written Through Gates of Splendor, In the Shadow of the Almighty, These Strange Ashes, and The Savage My Kinsman. 
While I was reading this biography of Elizabeth Elliot, I got to thinking about ultramarathon runners. An ultramarathon can be anywhere from 31 to 100 miles, I believe. Runners that submit themselves to this extreme challenge experience soreness, blisters, cardiac issues, hyperthermia, hypothermia, foot pain, energy depletion, upset stomach, joint pain, weight loss, and sleep deprivation. Now, the weight loss sounds like a bonus to me, but the rest of these medical problems all sound absolutely miserable, especially when they're combined with the others. What's my point? Well, some people run extreme spiritual races. It really can be anybody. It doesn't only apply to missionaries, and honestly, it doesn't even have to be classified by the word extreme. The side effects of the spiritual race can be fatigue of mind related to spiritual warfare, relational blisters, losing heart, a cold heart, a heart burning with anger, physical pain from stress, lack of energy, indigestion, and poor sleep. The struggle can be intense, and it's very real. Elizabeth Elliot ran her race for the glory of God with her eyes fixed on Jesus. She really, really endured heartache after heartache. She wasn't superhuman, but she kept her eyes on Christ. She died in 2015. She's now in the heavenly cloud of witnesses, but her life lived by faith is yet another finger pointing to the one who made every loss and every triumph worth it all. I've not done this before, but I want to end our time today by telling you to close this episode so that you can click the YouTube link I provided in today's show notes. It's a video of Elizabeth Elliot speaking about suffering to a church in North Carolina. The visuals are outdated, but the truths are timeless. If Elizabeth were with me now, I would say, thank you, Betty. You've touched my heart in such a powerful way. 